Amen. Thank you, Christina. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to John's Gospel, the first chapter. Let's look together this morning at the theme, the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas, John chapter 1. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now if you look to the screen, and let's read these last verses all together in unison. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth that we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel. God with us. Lord, that you sent your Son into this dark world to be our Redeemer, our Savior. Because we are desperate and we need a Savior. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says no one would be, will be justified by the keeping of a law. If we could be justified by a law, Paul says in the book of Romans, then surely a law would have been given. But as it is, no one shall be justified by the law or the works of the flesh. We need a Savior. The Bible tells us that you sent your Son, the just for the unjust, that He would die for us. That he might bring us to God. We thank you for the Lord Jesus that he did what none of us could ever do. He died on the cross taking the wrath of God against sin and dying as our substitute and our sacrifice in our place. That we might have life. Father we know that the world by and large rejects this and the Bible talks about that. That men suppress the truth and so they grope about in the darkness. But to those who receive you, you give the right to be, that we become children of God. Whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, and can have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son. Who has reconciled us to yourself. And made peace through the shedding of his blood. Father, if there are any here today that do not know Christ, I pray that this Christmas season would be the very time that they would submit their lives to you. That your Holy Spirit would be at work 
in their hearts today, helping them to understand their guilt and their predicament, but also pointing them forward to the hope that they have in Christ. And I pray that they would confess Him publicly and surrender to His Lordship. Father, we thank You for this chapter in the Gospel of John that helps us to understand Jesus' person and work, His identity, and what He's done for us and how clearly it points out the good news of Christmas. Grant us understanding in these matters this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1983, at the first Presbyterian Church of Concord, California, they made a bold and some would even say an outrageous move. Not surprisingly, because of what they did, it caused quite a stir in the city. They made headlines. You see, the land and the building next door to the church was property that they desperately needed. Now, a hitch came with the sale of the property. Anybody who bought that property would have to allow the current tenants to stay in it for one year. That was the agreement. And that's where the controversy was. Pastor Leon Thompson went before the congregation and convinced the congregation that they needed to go ahead and make the purchase. Not only would the land and the building supply the extra space that they needed as a congregation, but it would be a chance to once and for all drive out the current resident who was there. The church made the purchase. For one solid year, they were the not-so-proud owners. I'm sure the only church ever in America for one year to be the not-so-proud owners of an adult XXX theater. But today that land and property belongs to that church and it is a community center hosting Bible studies and a counseling center not only for the members of that congregation but for the community. And so that property is now being used to build up families versus tearing down families. Folks, there's a slight parallel in that story to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. With the risk of being rejected and misunderstood, Jesus Christ entered into our darkness and paid the price of our redemption that one day we might be free from the presence of sin altogether. Now it's been said that John chapter 1 is perhaps the most profound page in the scripture. In John's gospel, it's John's purpose to show that the fully human Jesus is also fully divine. He's God. And therefore, unlike Matthew and Luke who wish to show Jesus' humanity, John includes no genealogy because the genealogy only means something from the human standpoint of view. Now, unlike the other gospel writers, John was not so much concerned about the where and the when of Christmas as he was about the who and the why of Christmas. He assumed the reality of the manger. What he wants us to understand is the theology behind the manger. From the very first chapter of his gospel, he wants us to understand the identity of Jesus Christ. Somebody has well said about this passage that never has so much been said in so few words. 
Again, he wants us to understand the identity of Jesus Christ. His full deity and his full humanity. Let's look at that together this morning. First of all, from verse 1, I want you to see the the pre-incarnate Christ. In verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who do you think, or what do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is he? Now in Christianity, we all know that this is the most important question that could ever confront anybody. Who is Jesus Christ and what has he done? Now according to James Montgomery Boyce, he says, If he was only a man, then you and I can safely forget all about him. But if he is God as he claimed to be and as all Christians believe, then you should yield your very life to him. Your eternity depends upon it. Now John first of all points out here his timelessness. Notice that first phrase of verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now we know who John meant by saying the word because verse 14 tells us. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. And so this term or this phrase, the word, is an obvious reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But you see what John was doing is he was using a phrase that the Greeks and the Jews at that time could easily understand. To understand what the, what the Greeks believed about the word, the logos, you really have to go back to the 6th century B.C. to one of the Greek philosophers by the name of Heraclitus. Now he's the one who said that it is impossible to step into the same river twice. In other words, all around us is radical change. But Heraclitus and the other philosophers asked, if everything about us changes so radically, how is it that everything that exists is not in a state of perpetual chaos? And they answered that by affirming that what we have is not random change, but rather ordered change. And for there to be ordered change, there must therefore be intelligent design behind it. There must be a divine force, a divine reason, or a divine logos that controls it all. You see, the Greeks believed in a divine word, a logos that was at work in the universe. Now, they didn't know how to get their arms around it. They didn't know exactly who or what it was. They just believed that there was a divine force, a divine spark that was the source of truth. They saw all this order and symmetry in the universe and they knew something or someone had to be behind it. And so John is saying to them, I'm going to communicate to you who the Logos is that you're searching for. He has a name and his name is Jesus. Now likewise, the Jews who believed in one God knew that there was wisdom and truth in the world and that the, uh, and the Old Testament sometimes personified that wisdom and truth. John is saying to them, I'm going to show you how the truth and the living God you believe in has manifested himself to you in the world in a very real and personal way. And so here in verse 1, John says, in the beginning was the Word. That reminds us of how the Bible opens in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John says in the beginning was the word. And the tense of the verb that he uses was very important. It literally means in the beginning the word already was. You see Jesus was not just simply From the beginning, he was 
in the beginning. Before there was a universe, there was Christ. Before there was a sun to shine or a moon to glow, there was Jesus. Jesus had his birth in Bethlehem, but not his beginning. There was never a time that Jesus was not. And what John is wanting us to understand here is that Jesus is not simply a part of the created order. He stands over against the created order as one who was not created. In the beginning, when creation began, he was already there. Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity past. As I've told you before, what R.G. Lee said about this. Jesus is the only person ever born who at the moment of his birth was older than his mother and just as old old as his father. This pre-existent eternal Christ is described as the word. You can know what I'm thinking by hearing what I'm saying. A word communicates. Jesus is the word who communicates who God is and what God is like. Jesus is the uh, the visible expression of the invisible God. And then John moves on to talk about his equality there in verse 1. He says the word was with God. Now the preposition with here in the Greek literally means that the word was face to face with God. Now folks, John is trying to communicate something astonishing to us that he doesn't want us to miss. He's saying to us that the Word is on equal footing with God. He's using an anthropomorphism. You know what that is when we assign a human characteristic to God. Like we talk about the hand of God being stretched out. Well, we know that God is spirit. God doesn't have a body like ours. God is spirit. And and yet we say that God reaches forth his hand. That's an anthropomorphism. And that's what John is using here. He's saying that the word is face to face eyeball to eyeball with God. Now all through the Bible, beginning with Genesis, we see the doctrine of the Trinity that states that God is one but in three distinct personalities. We're not talking about three gods. Nor are we talking about one God who is only one but reveals himself in three distinct ways over a period of time. In other words, sometimes he's father, sometimes he's son, and sometimes he's Holy Spirit. Folks, that's not the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, that is a heresy known as modalism. Let me explain it this way. Growing up, I had a little lizard. I had a little chameleon as a a small child. Now, boy, that little lizard had amazing capabilities to kind of morph himself into whatever his surroundings were. He could be green or brown or whatever and you just, you just wouldn't see him in the terrarium without looking real closely and finding him because he would change himself and, and, and he would just sort of blend in. Now I read in a little book on my chameleon that they love to bask in the sunlight. But now somebody hadn't explained to me at that young age what closed glass does in the sunlight. Kind of like leaving a pet in a hot car in the summertime or a baby. How dangerous that can be. So one day I take this terrarium out onto our patio because I said, you know, the book says he loves to bask in the sunlight. Well, I came back later that afternoon and he was crispy. I guess in some parts of the world, they would have wrapped him in bacon and made a tasty little hors d'oeuvre out of him. But he could kind of morph himself, change. 
Folks, when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't take turns, in other words, deciding who he's going to be today. You see, in modalism, they would say in the Old Testament, he was the Father. In the New Testament, he's the Son. In the church age, he's the Holy Spirit. He kind of changes who he is. No, 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 no. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity is that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't take turns deciding who he's going to be today. Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. The noun for God with a plural ending. But while a plural ending, the verb that goes with the noun is not in the plural to agree. But it's in the singular. Think about that. Genesis 1.26, when God declared that he was ready to create man, he said, let us make man in our image, us and our. Who's that? It's the Trinity. Now, there are those who accuse us of worshiping three gods. We do not. We only worship one God. God is one, as the Bible says. But that one God has manifested himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even the universe in which we live expresses the triune God that we worship. This universe is made up of space, matter, and time. And then these three, likewise, are made up of threes. Space is length, breadth, and height, matter. Matter is energy, motion, and substance, and time is past, present, and future. Man himself is body, soul, and spirit. Folks, it's like God has placed the stamp of the Trinity on everything. Just so John is not misunderstood, he then clarifies his point even more. He gives his identity. He says in that last phrase of verse 1, and the word was God. That's one of the plainest statements in the Bible on the deity of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could say, I and my Father are one. Over and over again, Jesus proved that he was God in the flesh. He showed his divinity over creation. He said to the wind and the waves, peace be still, and immediately that storm calmed down. He showed his divinity over sin. He said to the lame man, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven you. And he healed the man physically to show everybody that he could also forgive, the, had the power to forgive the man of his sins. He showed his divinity and his knowledge. He said to the woman at the well whom he had never met there in John 4. You, he said, you've spoken correctly for you have had, when she said, I, I, I'm not married. He said, you're right, but, but you've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your husband. How could Jesus know that? Because he's God. And so all through the pages of the Gospels, we see him doing miracles that could only be attributed to God. And how could that be? It's because he's God. God the Son. In the beginning was the Word. He was never created. The same was with God and he was God. Now secondly, John points out the powerful Christ. Look beginning in verse 3 with me. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He was the agent of creation. John makes an important shift in verbs here between verse 1 and verse 3. Now, in verse 1, he used the verb me, which simply means to be. And he put it in the tense that 
that means that Jesus has always been. That was verse 1. But now in verse 3, speaking of creation, he shifts the verb to the word, the root of which is genomai, meaning to become or come into being. And so while he acknowledges in verse 1 that Christ is eternal, he's acknowledging in verse 3 that matter is not eternal. It had to be created. What's Colossians 1 say? For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The more we learn of the universe, the more vast it becomes. Some years ago, the Hubble telescope allowed scientists to see things they'd never seen before. One astronomer estimates that there are 14 quadrillion. How do you even get your mind around that number? Four, 14 quadrillion solar systems, each one with billions and billions of stars. Vastness. And yet the more we take our microscopes and examine the small things, the more detailed and complex we learn that the universe is at the same time. Somebody has said that if you could take the molecules out of one single drop of water and convert those molecules into grains of sand, you could have enough sand to make a concrete highway half a mile wide and one foot thick that goes all the way from New York City to San Francisco. From one drop of water, the molecules in it. And Jesus made it all. He sustains it all. Folks, think of our planet. It doesn't travel in a true circle. It travels in different directions, different ways. At the same time, it travels around the sun. At the same time, it, it revolves on its axis. Uh, its axis and its path is also deflected by other planets. And yet it does not lose more than one one-hundredth of a second every 100 years. Amazing. If Jesus can sustain this earth and this universe, you know what that tells me? It's no problem for him to take care of little old me. And that's why the Bible says we can cast all care upon him because he cares for us. He's sovereign, he's mighty, he's eternal. He's God the Son, he made it all. He holds it all together. By his will it exists. And he cares about me. And he cares about you. In, in verse 4 he points out he holds the key to life. God gives man life. At two levels. First of all, there's physical life. Genesis tells us that God took the dust of the earth. He formed man, but then he breathed into the man. Man became a living soul. And so God gives us our physical life and our spiritual life. First, there's the physical. Think about that for a moment. Man did not and does not inherently possess life of his own. Even though some scientists today want to open the door for cloning, they're simply not able to create ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. What they have to start with is the basic building blocks of life that are already there and manipulate those basic building blocks. But God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. Oh, man would love to do that, but man simply can't. You see, man does not inherently possess life of his own accord. Man doesn't exist eternally. God does. 
Man was created by God. Life was and is a gift from God. Who is it a gift from? He says here in verse 4, from Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says that in him was life. Christ inherently has life and is life. There's never been a time that he was not and he's the giver of life. Not only does he give life at the physical level, but he gives life at the spiritual level. You see, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 points that out. We're dead in trespasses and sins. There are corpses walking around on planet earth and they don't even know it. They're spiritually dead to God. That's how the human race is before conversion. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. In John 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 3, 16 points out that in him we have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's the source of life, physical and spiritual. There is no life apart from Him. Folks, that means that life is more than simply walking and talking and eating and breathing. Real life is knowing God and that only happens through a relationship with His Son, Jesus. In Him was life. John goes on in verses 4 and 5. He's the light of the world. He says there in verse 4, In him was life and the life was the light of men. A person without Jesus is not only spiritually dead, but also is in spiritual darkness. John 8, 12, it says, Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. One of the most heartbreaking things in the world to see is people who are stumbling around in the dark and they're looking for light in all the wrong places. Some do this on purpose. Even though they know he's the light, they run from him. John 3.19 tells us why. It says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The light shines and the world doesn't comprehend it. Verses 10 and 11 gives a sad commentary on that. Verse 10 says, he was in the world. Listen to this. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You see, when the Bible says that Jesus is the light, and then in verse 9 it says that he enlightens every man, that means that every man is given a witness to the light. God has put it within us. Romans 1 talks about that. Romans 1 talks about the whole human race having enough light to understand that there is a God that they are accountable to. Now that light is not sufficient for salvation. General revelation isn't sufficient for salvation. We need special revelation. We need, we need to know about Jesus Christ. But Romans 1 says God has given enough light and general revelation that everybody knows that there is a God that they are accountable to. But Romans 1 says that men suppress that truth. They want to push aside any talk or any knowledge of God and deny Him. Why do they do that? John 3 says because they, they love 
their evil deeds. They don't want to come to the true light because they want to make a God out of whatever they, they want to make a God out of so that they're not accountable to the true and living God. So they want to try to deny God and create their own little God. They try to suppress the light. And then look for light, other light in all the wrong places. Kind of like the drunk I read about. Drunk man uh, is nighttime and he was searching the road and the, and the sidewalk and the patch of grass there. He was looking for something. Another man came along and said, what are you looking for? He said, I dropped my wallet. And so the... The sober man said, well, here, let me, let me try to help you find it. And he got down on all, all fours and he, and he was trying to look, look around. They searched and they searched and they searched. They never could find the, the wallet. And finally the sober man said to the drunk, are you sure you dropped your wallet right here? And the drunk said, oh, no, I dropped it way back there. He said, then why are we looking right here? The drunk said, because there's no light back there. That's how the world is, looking in all the wrong places. But to those who will come to the true light, look at what verses 12 and 13 say. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Folks, one of the greatest invitations in the Bible right there in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This powerful Christ, he's creator, he's light, he's life, he's sovereign God. He's the one who put all this together and holds everything together. Now surely I could never, ever, ever hope to know a God so powerful, so mighty, so sovereign, so transcendent, right? I could never know Him. Huh? That's not what this passage says at all. We can know Him. Thirdly, John points out the personal Christ. Professor John Bailey of Edinburgh University in Scotland wrote a book entitled The Idea of Revelation in Recent Thought. And in that book, he tells of a complaint he once received about Christianity. The man making the complaint was a legal representative of one of our American schools. He said, you speak of trusting God, of praying to Him and doing His will, but it's also one-sided. We speak to God, we bow down before Him and lift up our hearts to Him, but He never speaks to us. He makes no sign. Now folks, as you think about Christianity, you can't be more wrong than that. Because John 1 is telling us he has spoken. He has come to us. He has made himself known. God has taken the initiative in Jesus Christ. God has come down to man that we might know God. And verse 14 he says, He came in flesh and blood. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He came humbly. When, when Queen Elizabeth II visited the United States, reporters delighted in spelling out all the logistics involved. She brought with her 4,000 pounds of luggage. Now me and your wife might pack a lot. I don't think she packs that much. 4,000 pounds of luggage. Included two outfits for every occasion. A morning outfit. Morning, M-O-U-R-I-N-G. Morning, in case there was a death occurred abroad that she was invited to the funeral. A morning outfit. 40 pints of plasma. And white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser. Two valets. 
and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country, even for a short visit, can cost in excess of $20 million. Jesus came humbly, born into a poor family there in a manger. Verse 10 says he was in the world. Verse 14 clarifies that, that he tabernacled in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was a place where man could meet with God while being in the wilderness. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle in the New Covenant where man living in the wilderness of this world, so to speak, can can meet with God and be reconciled to God. He was in the world as flesh He was a flesh and blood man. Fully man. Fully God, but fully man. He wasn't simply, he didn't come as simply a ghost or a spirit or some type of apparition. Uh, he, He came flesh and blood like us, but born of a virgin. But like us in the flesh, why would God do things this way? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us why. He came in the flesh so he would be able to identify with us in all ways except sin. The writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all ways just like we're tempted and yet without sin. But he came in the flesh so he will know exactly what it's like to be a man with all that we face. Jesus was hungry and had to eat. He was third. He said from the cross, I thirst. He experienced pain. He experienced everything that we experience in the flesh, yet without sin. So that now as we go before him and go before the Father in prayer, as we go before him, the writer of Hebrews says, he's our sympathetic high priest and he makes intercession for us before the Father. He knows how to pray for us because again, he's walked in our shoes. Folks, that's good news. Verse 18 points out he came to reveal the Father. The word is literally exegete the Father or explain the Father. There's no disparity between God the Father and God the Son. There was a heretic in the second century by the name of Marcion. Now Polycarp was the disciple of John. The same John that wrote this gospel and wrote the book of Revelation. Polycarp was a disciple of John. You know what Polycarp said of Marcion? You know what he called Marcion? The firstborn of Satan. Now how would you like that name? Polycarp said Marcion is the firstborn of Satan. You know why he said that? Marcion was a heretic. He rejected much of our Bible. He, He rejected the entire Old Testament. He only accepted a mutilated cut and paste version of the gospel of Luke and then 10 of Paul's letters that's all Marcion didn't like the God of the Old Testament at all he said he's mean and vengeful he rejected altogether the God of the Old Testament he said now now Jesus you know he's he's nice he's a nice guy He drew this division between the Father and the Son. Does the Bible draw a division between the Father and the Son? Absolutely not. There's no division. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There's no disparity. There's no division between the Father and the Son. Jesus, according to verse 18, came to show us the Father. One of the saddest stories in the Word of God concerns this. It's a story in John 14. Jesus explained that he was going away from his disciples, but that he was going to prepare a place for them. 
Now they were all depressed about Jesus leaving them. Jesus went on to say to them if they had really known him, then they would have known the Father. At this point, Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. In other words, Philip was saying, Jesus, if we could just see God, I think everything would be okay. And Jesus responded by saying, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you now say, show us the Father? Jesus came to exegete the Father. To show us the Father, verse 18 says. So that we will know what God is like. And he came in flesh and blood to do that. Fully God and yet fully man. The personal Christ. Rather than simply being distant and aloof, he tabernacled among us. He entered into our wilderness. He partook of our flesh that he might identify with us, that he might die for us. No man has ever seen God. Jesus came to explain him, to exegete him. There's a Christmas story been made into a Christmas card. One of those long lengthy cards. It's kind of like a book. It was entitled, If Christ Had Not Come. The card told the story of a pastor on Christmas morning falling asleep in his study and dreaming of a world in which Jesus had never come. He looked through his home and there were no stockings hanging on the chimney. No Christmas bells, no Christmas decorations, no family get-togethers, no Christmas smells. Likewise, there was no Christ to comfort or to save. He walked outside, there were no churches, no steeples pointing up to heaven. You know, that's what John Lennon wrote about in that song, Imagine, right? A world without any religion. He came back to his study, found that there were no books about Jesus in his library. The doorbell rang and there stood a small child from his congregation. The child was crying because his mother was dying and he asked the preacher to come quickly. Preacher grabbed his Bible, hastened down the road with the child, entered the home, went to the bedside of the woman who was dying and said, I want to read something to you. Opened his Bible and was surprised to find that it it ended with Malachi. Suddenly dawned on him there was no Savior who had arrived. No gospel to preach. No John 3.16. No John 14. No Romans 8. No 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. The preacher bowed his head and wept. Folks, think about Christmas without Christ. You know, sadly, evidently, that's what the world wants to do today. Christmas without the guest of honor, without Christ. But thankfully, we have the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is Jesus. He's God's gift. The gift that surpasses all gifts. Would you bow in prayer with me please? This morning I want to ask you, who is Christ to you? Does does your view coincide with what the Bible says about Jesus? You see the Bible is clear as to who he is and what he's done. Some people say, well, he was a nice man, he was a saint, he was a prophet, he was a good teacher, he worked miracles. But you know, all that's not good enough. Yes, he's all those things, but he's more. The Bible says he is Savior and Lord. Who do you say that he is? Have you submitted your life to the Lordship of Christ? 
If not, why not make this your very first Christmas that you truly understand the meaning of Christmas. Give Christ your heart. Follow Him as Lord and Savior. You can know this morning that He's able to forgive you of your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. He can forgive you. You can have a white Christmas even if it doesn't snow. Isaiah 1 talks about that. that though, our skin, uh, though our sins be red as scarlet, they can be washed as white as snow. You can be forgiven. If that's your need, I'm going to ask you to step out and come forward in just a moment. Come forward, take my hand and say, Pastor I need Christ in my life. He is Lord. I want to submit my life to His Lordship. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. I want to know God. Would you pray with me? I'll be happy to. Remember also that as creator and the light of the world, He deserves your worship. And so that means if you're withholding yourself and your worship from Jesus Christ, you're a thief and a robber. Because you're taking what is rightfully His and you're using your life as though it were your own. Why not say this Christmas season, Lord, with every fiber of my being, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. I want you to be magnified in my life. As light of the world, he's able to lead you. He's the good shepherd. He has wisdom and knowledge and power where you don't. Is there some area of your life you need His leadership? Ask Him. Seek Him. Father, I pray that this Christmas season we would see the good news of Christmas. That Jesus is the good news. That we would be drawn to Him in a fresh way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.